0: Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. FelonFile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author, and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File Today Stories of Mistaken Identities. Some by accident, some on purpose and some possibly by negligence. Background music track unspoken by Mew. The sponsor for today's episode of The Felon File is The Salty Heifer Home Store and more. The Consignments, Lairways, Antiques and Home Decor. Located at 75 Roy Edwards Lane Mars Hill, North Carolina. Contact Trish the Owner at thesaltyheifer75 at gmail.com Scott We're recording. Background track unspoken by MuSoundCloud.com. Mew Music promoted by free stockmusic.com Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. Creative Commons.org.
1: Thank you Victoria for opening us up. And starting us out and running the control board for us here on another episode of Felon File where as Victoria said we are a look at law enforcement issues investigations and the like that have happened in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. And we're gonna expand out with our shade of blue story today and look at some uh, different locations and some things that have happened here and some things that have happened to me personally. We are coming to you today from the great state of North Carolina. Recording from the International Recording Studio at Scratch Ankle, North Carolina. East of Asheville, west of Canton. Make a left to Candler and you will find us. So, our discussion today is a couple of Shade of Blue stories. About identity theft. And we hear about this, and there's tons of advertisements on the radio. William Shatner is out there telling people to avoid uh, identity theft. Different salespeople are out there telling you this, that, and the other thing. But what if your identity theft was more personal and hit home a little? Differently than actually just stealing your ID and possibly your money now while working as a law enforcement officer I've been lied to many times most cops have by a lot of different people it's just one of those things somebody will give you or use somebody else's name in order to avoid a possible arrest on outstanding warrants or numerous reasons there's been several times that the name that the person's given me and other officers has also ended up having outstanding warrants on them. And they ended up being arrested on this new name. And then the information comes out once they get to jail that that's not who they are. And the original charges end up being served on them. Plus, they pick up another charge of false information or obstruction or identity theft as well as their own original criminal charges. On a side note, these individuals are usually very quick to give up whereabouts the person whose name they're using that was also wanted. If I'm going to jail, he needs to go to jail, I guess is the theory. In the 1990s, I made a traffic stop on what I thought was a possible drunk driver. The gentleman operating an old beat-up pickup truck on Tunnel Road here in Asheville, North Carolina. No headlights, only one taillight. And an uh, inspection sticker violation as well as a expired tag. Typical Saturday night traffic stop. No big deal. I stopped the gentleman and he provided me with a driver's license. The vehicle was registered to the same person whose identity was on the driver's license. And the gentleman questioned resembled the person that was in the photograph on the driver's license. and I had no reason to really suspect that it was not the person that was on the driver's license. And I had no reason to really suspect that it was not that individual. The gentleman was not intoxicated, but like I said, was operating the vehicle without headlights and some other violations. I issued a citation to the man for the equipment violations, warned him to park the truck until he could get it legally operating in the state And also, operating where it won't be a risk by driving without headlights. And then I never saw the man again. I noticed the pickup truck stayed there for two or three days in the parking lot. It disappeared later. I figured the man probably had had his vehicle towed home or to someplace to get it repaired and up to date. And then he would pay off the ticket or take the documentation that he would get to the district attorney's office. And more than likely, the DA's office would, before the court date or on the court date, they would throw the whole thing out and dismiss it, which was very common at the time. But our gentleman from the traffic stop didn't show up for court. Several months later, I did receive a call to meet with my lieutenant, Lieutenant Ray Beheler, at the Asheville Police Station. Once I arrived I found the lieutenant in his office with two gentlemen both in military uniforms. The lieutenant presented me with a copy of the citation, the one I had issued to the faulty equipment driver, and he asked me if the gentleman standing in front of his desk in uniform was the man that I stopped. I told him that he was not the the man that I had issued the citation to. The other gentleman happened to be a individual from uh, military investigation cid he requested that i sign a form to that and i did and then i took the gentleman over to the district attorney's office and explained situation in the da's office and dismissed the charges on the soldier it turns out that the brother of the soldier had used his name and his id as well as his vehicle while his brother was deployed and he had done this in several locations and jurisdictions both in North Carolina and South Carolina and been issued citations under his brother's name. After confirming all this and talking to the district attorney and getting everything straight, I went and took out new warrants under the correct name or put the brother down as a witness as well. I told the brother that if he could bring me his his lying brother, I uh, would follow through with charging him under the correct name as well as adding a few more charges. Now, the brother that was in the army had discovered the failure to appear charge when he had been up for a new background investigation for a clearance that he had in the military. Apparently, it was somewhat important, and that's why the CID officer had come with him to Asheville as well as to several other locations I found out where a little brother had done the same thing. Now, I will have to admit, like I said, there was a lot of resemblance between the two brothers, and that's really not that unusual. Now, a month later, I get a call while working day shift on a Saturday as somebody wanted to meet with me at the police station. This was an early Saturday morning, and I drove up and parked in front of the police station, where our military man was leaning against his car in the parking lot. Now, there were a couple of guys from the fire department. Some of the fire guys were washing one of the fire trucks in front of the Combination Police Department fire station there in downtown Asheville, and they paused to see what was going on. I shook the brother's hand and asked him if he knew where, where his younger brother was and if he had information on his whereabouts. He nodded his head and walked around to the back of the car and opened the trunk with a key. Inside the trunk laid his brother, a little worse for wear, black eye and a bruised face, but still alive, although you couldn't have told that to the fire guys because as soon as they saw the body in the trunk, they took off, and I really don't blame them. If you don't know anything, you can't testify to it. Well the guy, like I said, was still alive. I got the sibling out and without asking him any questions whatsoever, He blurted out and admitted to me that he had falsely used his brother's identification and was willing and ready to take and face the consequences of his actions. On the trip over to the jail, I asked him several times what had happened to him as far as the injuries on his face and that he had sustained about his head and face. And then he would only tell me, I fell down. I'm sure that was the case. There was another incident I was indirectly involved with that involved uh, identity theft in a serious manner. We responded to a death scene where a gentleman had been hit by a train here in Asheville, and it had killed him, run over while laying on the train tracks. The body was pretty well chewed up, to say the least. We did find a wallet with a driver's license in it in the blue jean pocket of the dead man, and the description fit fairly well, or died from the train impact. Investigators with the police department and a chaplain proceeded to the address on the driver's license to make a death notification of the next of kin. I was also on the scene, and I went with the detectives and the chaplain because I was in uniform and they were not, and they thought it would be appropriate that a uniformed officer also accompanied them upon arrival at the house we discovered that there was a family get-together going on not a great time to make a death notification i would think but anyway the detectives knocked on the door and we asked for the next of kin to come to the door going into the house we sat down in the living room proceeded to tell the next of kin about the passing of her son normally you can expect all kinds of reactions to a death notification this time we were met with giggling kind of a strange reaction but not that unheard of after some investigation on the part of our detectives we found out that our dead guy was actually sitting in a chair across from us while we the death notification apparently the man on the railroad tracks had stolen the wallet of the man there at the house and he was able to help identify who the person was that was run over that situation of a death notification of the wrong person luckily for us was not that tragic a situation in November of 1980 A native of Burke County was traveling in Fairfax, Virginia, northern Virginia, when she was involved in a weekend car accident. Apparently it was a very serious accident, one of the worst that had happened in quite a while in that area. The accident was reported as being the worst in Fairfax County in more than three years. Two cars carrying young people returning from a Saturday night outing, collided and both vehicles were hurtled down a twelve-foot embankment along a curve. Four individuals died. A Miss Kathy Story was riding in one vehicle and a Miss and a Miss Killenbile was in the other. Miss Killingbile was transported to the local hospital and an officer was dispatched for investigation of the car accident. Police officer T D Bender interviewed the woman he thought was the eighteen-year-old Miss Killingville, one of the three survivors. The woman whose face had been badly damaged and disfigured in the accident, but had regained consciousness. She'd been in the hospital for three days. Officer Bender addressed her as Alina Killingville, very weak voice the person in the bed made the statement to the officer my name is Kathy now Bender realized something was not quite right and he notified his his supervisors asked for the Killing Bill family to return to the hospital for a more positive identification what was reported as quote there might be a problem now at the hospital the parents were led to the woman's bed and asked if their daughter had a slight deformity on her right foot. They said no and that's when a sister noticed that the person in the bed didn't have pierced ears as her sister did. Further investigation showed the woman was actually Kathy Story, 22 years old, a Burke County native that graduated from East Burke High School in 1977. Her family had been notified of her death and had had the body cremated or what they thought was the body of their family member obituaries were run in the local newspapers and the cremated remains were relinquished to the family then it was determined that they made the notification of the wrong family when interviewed by the press the police Fairfax police department said both women had very severe facial injuries that obscured their identification. Both families had made the wrong identification after the wreck. Miss Story was in very serious condition but she did survive. Terrible situation for a family to be told that their family member is alive and to discover later that they were not the emotional situation of finding out that the person you thought had passed in a very tragic situation was now alive. Let's look at a family in Chicago. A family that had pulled the plug, so to speak, on a relative who had passed away in hospice care received a shocking surprise when the alleged dead man showed up at a barbecue. That was a fatal mistake of mistaken identity on the part of the Chicago Police Department and a local Chicago hospital. This incident occurred in July of 2019. It turns out that Alfonso Bennett, our deceased, who wasn't deceased, was actually out of town when when police brought an injured and unidentified man to Chicago's Mercy Hospital in the summer of 2019. Although the man's face was severely disfigured by injuries, police used mug shots and identified him as Bennett. Members of Bennett's family were contacted and called to the hospital, and they insisted to the doctors and the hospital staff and law enforcement that the guy in the hospital bed didn't look like Alfonso. but Bureaucracy knows best, and they were told repeatedly that the identification was correct, and they were just in denial. Now, Bennett's sister, Rosie Brooks, told the doctors, quote, I understand what you're saying, but I cannot recognize him as my brother. He had been beaten severely, apparently, and the Chicago police and hospital staff indicated this was why the family couldn't recognize him. In fact, he was so severely beaten and injured, the doctors recommended the Bennett family that he be removed from a respirator and transferred to hospice care, which the family reluctantly agreed to. Hospice care, in my law enforcement career and in my personal life, I've had several instances of working with them and or relating to hospice organizations. My personal opinion, these are wonderful, caring people who need who fill a need that not many people are willing to do overseeing a person's last moments on earth if you're looking for a charity or a local hospice organization I would highly recommend it be a good charity to contribute to three days after entering hospice the gentleman passed away the family grieved of course for their loss then as the family was preparing for the funeral Bennett who as we said earlier, in reality had been traveling out of state, he returned to town and showed up at a friend's barbecue, completely unaware that he was supposed to be dead. Fortunately, the friend who was throwing the barbecue was aware of his passing, so to speak, and notified the rest of the family. Bennett was able to make contact and let his family know that, yes, I am still alive. Well, the family was very much relieved, Authorities transferred the body of the misidentified man to the Cook County Morgue where simple fingerprint identification showed him as a 68 year old gentleman by the name of Britman At this point officials contacted Britman's family to inform them of his death and It just brought a lot of trauma to both families the Britman family and the Bennett family the Britman family told the press now members of both the families are suing the Chicago Police Department and Mercy Hospital over the mistake. The lawsuit contends that both the police and the hospital failed to correctly identify Britman and that hospital representatives neglectedly convinced plaintiffs to make quality and end-of-life decisions for a person they did not know. The Chicago Police Department reported to the Chicago Tribune when they were asked that they had actually opened a new death investigation. To say that we currently have questions is an understatement, the department said in a statement. We have detectives looking into every aspect of this incident, from the incident response to the circumstances leading to the hospitalization and the notification of family members. The family say that the mistaken identity could have been simply avoided by checking his fingerprints when the police brought him to the hospital. A spokesman for the family was said, quote, The bottom line is this mistaken identity situation, something we think could have easily been avoided and should have been avoided. You, know, you gotta admit, there's a lot of truth to that. Now, looking at misreported deaths, every year, the United States Office of Social Security falsely lists 6,000 people as being deceased when they actually aren't and that screws up a whole lot of credit lines. Some other cases of misidentification that I found while searching through court records and media sources. In 2006 two teenage girls were involved in a car accident where one survived and the other did. The fact the girls were very similar in appearance and the survivor was incredibly injured causing her face to swell and bruise led to the error and identification. While one family buried and grieved for who they thought was their daughter, the other sat vigil at the hospital bed of the child they believed was theirs. It took weeks until both families worlds were turned upside down after discovering the error. No autopsy was performed and errors in identification that were made that caused two families unnecessary heartache and frustration. In 2017, an elderly California man held a funeral for his 57-year-old son who had been mentally ill and living on the streets. The man was told that his son had been positively identified through fingerprints so there was no need to view the body for identification. The family spent close to $20,000 on his funeral. He was buried next to his mother family and friends were in attendance from around the country. Apparently two weeks later the son shows up very much alive. Turns out that the fingerprint identification was unable to be performed and the man was identified through an old driver's license. The family sued for incorrect identification alleging negligence on the part of the officials to do their due diligence because the man was homeless. In 2019 there was another auto accident involving the death of two teenage girls whose identity was mixed up and again this resulted in both families filing lawsuits. As a result of the girls being misidentified at the scene, the families are now suing the Florida Highway Patrol, Pensacola District Commander, the Escumbia County Coroner, and the Medical Examiner's Office, and the funeral homes that handled the burials for both girls. In this particular case, both the young ladies passed away, but their identities were switched and they were both buried under the wrong names. In February of 2020, a fire in Monroe County, Georgia, resulted in a misidentification of a female victim. Authorities believed that a mother had set fire to the home, killing her and her children. It was later determined that who they believed to be the female victim was actually alive and ended up being arrested while driving her mother's vehicle. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation took over the investigation looking at the arson and the identifying of the body that had been left in the fire. In actuality, this investigation is still ongoing since it happened in February 2020. And we're waiting to see just exactly what comes out of that. And we'll try to do an update on that in the future. Well, that's our Shade of Blue stories on felon file for this week. A little bit of misidentification. Unusual things do happen, but it is important that we do our due diligence to make sure that the information, no matter what type of investigation it is, is correct as far as we can tell. Be sure to come back next week for another Shade of Blue story. Questions, comments, opposing viewpoints, or would just like to touch base with us, give us a call. You can reach us at FelonFile.com or FelonFile at gmail.com We'd be happy to hear from you. Victoria, if you'd like to make a contribution to Felon File to help us negate some of the expenses of uh, court records and other information that we get from various states that Kind of want us to pay for it. Uh, you can buy us a cup of coffee at scottlunsfordauthor.com. There at the bottom of the uh, webpage, or at felonfile.com at the bottom of the page. Be happy to receive anything, and we do use that a uh, little bit that comes in to help defray to help defray the costs of uh, records whenever we order them. And request them also check out our stuff page on scottlunsfordauthor.com where you can also where you can pick up a coffee mug or a felon file t-shirt nothing says leave me alone better in the morning than drinking your morning coffee out of a felon file coffee mug while wearing a felon file t-shirt you can also find copies of my books at that location at scottlunsfordauthor.com They're available also at Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble and other bookstores. In the meantime, throughout the coming week, remember, be safe, be secure, and if you have the opportunity, do something nice for somebody. It's really the right thing to do and helps the world. All right, Victoria, I'm going to turn it back over to you. You've got the control panel again. We'll talk to you guys next time on the Felon File Podcast. Bye, y'all.
0: You have been listening to the Felon File Podcast with your host, Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these websites. Be sure to check out the Stuff page on the website. Pick up a Felon File t-shirt, or coffee mug. You can also support the Felon File podcast by buying us a coffee from the link on the website. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. End.